Hello, and welcome back to The Rewind. I'm Josh, and this is a podcast where I watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends. Today's episode is about James Gray's Armageddon Time. Join me today. We're still happy he's here, even though I don't know if he brought the dumplings. It's Ben Lubin. Ben, what's going on? Uh, I live in LA. I, I eat dumplings as much as humanly possible, so. All right. And also joining us, he uh, perusing the computer shop. It's Elijah Howard. Elijah, what's going on? <laughs> oh, man, I'm always on the lookout. I'm back. <laughs> um, our, 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 I'm very excited to have both Elijah and Ben here. Armageddon Time is the follow-up for James Gray to his 2019 movie, Ad Astra, which Ben also joined him for. And a lot of James Gray's movies have been like, you know, at least somewhat autobi- autobiographical in one sense or another. But this is the, this is like the one that's most straight from his life out of all of his movies to date. It is really, if you've listened to any interview he's given in like the last couple months, and he's given a lot of them, and he's always a great interview. I highly recommend it whenever you see him getting interviewed anywhere just to listen to him. But uh, he's basically said, I mean, a lot of this is straight from his life. It's said in 1980 Queens, where he grew up, uh, based on a point of entry character that's based on himself. Uh, the character's name is Paul Graff. He's played by a young actor, newcomer named Banks Rapita. Paul is, you know, lives in lives in Queens with his middle class, you know, middle class family that's, you know, asp- aspiring to something greater. His parents, uh, Esther and Irving, are played by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong, respectively. And Paul is in the sixth grade, and he on his first day of the sixth grade, he befriends uh, an, uh, another somewhat, uh, you know, rebellious spirited kid uh, named Johnny, who's 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 black, and you know that. Uh, they, they get into a lot of trouble together that causes lots of, you know, consternation for his family. And with the help of his uh, grandfather named Aaron Rabinowitz, played by Anthony Hopkins, uh, they decide they're going to put him into a private school. And that sends him on a little bit of a different path from Johnny. And, you know, he kind of has to come to terms with like, you know, the pressures his family is putting on him, but also what it means that, you know, he is, uh, you know, on a slightly different path from this new friend he's made that, you know, has a, a lot of other things working against him in life. Guys, I'm... I, I'm, I'm kind of curious because like, I, I, I think like, I really like all of James Gray's movies and I like this one and this one in, in certain ways, obviously, you know, just as, you know, someone that, you know, especially more so than his last couple of films, which, you know, like took place in the Amazon in space. Uh, this one I think is like, you know, going to hit a little more closer to home inevitably. And especially for, you know, uh, three Jews such as our, ourselves. And I'm, and I, and I, and I, and I thought a lot about this movie as I was watching it. And I think, there's been a lot of there's been some criticism of it, I, I guess, from certain certain corners of the internet where it's like, or just or just the film critic community where they're like, hey, this is just James Gray pr- processing his white guilt, and you know maybe he's doing it in a very stylish way, but you know it's just a white guilt movie, and I'm like, eh, you know, like I can see that, but like I feel like I got a lot more out of that, so I'm curious, Elijah, what what about this made it more to you than just like some director processing his white guilt? Uh, to me, I felt that. You know, part of the part of part of what allows a movie to kind of rise above the very specific psychological storytelling of its origin would be context. And I feel like this movie is is uh, benefits very heavily from that context. You know, the film's setting, while real, true, based on you know, James Gray's actual childhood, um, it helps to introduce a lot more uh, kind, of, kind of a robust quality to the very simple experience, if you, if you will, uh, being being laid out. You know, I don't totally disagree that it is just, you know, him processing his white guilt, but it just so happens that this lines up at a very important moment in history when he was a child and I think to some degree, 
that context is still relevant today. We're seeing a lot of the same things that make that context relevant from 1980 still present today. And I think that's kind of where I would push back on that notion that it is that it's just about processing white guilt. I think that's a very that's that is that's a very narrow view of everything, the context that's happening uh, in the movie and the way that it relates to things happening today. That's an interesting way to put it. And I guess I, I, I it was something I was thinking about a lot since I first started seeing some of the reaction to the movie, because like I I, I was kind of thinking about it and I was like, look, I, there are certain ways like I, I can like acutely remember like when I first became aware of my privilege as a kid. So it's interesting, like watching a kid here, like, you know, come to terms with that and like, uh, but like at the same time, it's, it's, it's a little different than like, I don't think he, I think, you know, I think in some ways, like as a kid, I, I think I probably think of it more in terms of like, you know, uh, financial privilege as opposed to like, you know, uh, white privilege when I was a kid, because like, I grew up in a very sheltered community that was like 99% white. Uh, but at the same time, it was, it was kind of like the, 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 that kind of like shelteredness kind of like fell away and like that that bubble kind of burst a little bit for me after hurricane katrina is what i tell people because uh my family lost our house in hurricane ivan in 2004 and i and i was the only one with the i was the only one with a room on the first floor of my house and uh or, or, or like my parents and brother were on the second floor like the whole house had to get torn down but like only the first floor actually sustained water damage and flooded out so i spent like a whole year just feeling really sorry for myself and like oh my god how could i lose all my shit and then like, but I, my family, meanwhile, not understanding my family was actually really well off enough to like rent another house in a better location while that one got rebuilt. And then when that landlord kicked us out, they were able to buy another house. Um, that was in like, in like 2005, like, you know, like right before, even before the housing market crashed. So, and then like a year, and then like a year later, Katrina happens and like, we have like people from new Orleans in our school, uh, because like they couldn't like go anywhere there and they didn't have like, and they weren't that well taken care of. And I was like, all right, well, so I think something like this is striking a chord with me, whereas the character in this movie He's like, you know, uh, he thinks his family's rich when maybe they aren't, but he doesn't really exactly understand like maybe some of the, the flaws in his parents thinking early on about how they kind of approach the world. So I was like, all right, well, it's kind of cool to like see this guy kind of come to grips with this privilege. I can kind of relate to that. And I was thinking like, well, just because I can relate to something, it doesn't mean it's good. But like, I still thought this was really, I still think it's really good. So I was thinking a lot about like what else it really had going for it. And that made me kind of like, really like think about that part of it. I'm wondering, Ben, was there something about the movie that like kind of most struck a chord with you? Yeah. So, I mean, first up, I do, I do kind of want to weigh into the, I guess, complicated nature of the, the racial politics of the movie, mm-hmm. because I, I think I, I would agree with Elijah, where as much as I, I like the movie and I like it a lot, I think it's impossible to ignore that. Like, look, this is a movie about a white protagonist who befriends a thinly characterized black character and learns very important lessons from his association with that thinly defined character. Like on the surface, that is part of what this movie is. And I can absolutely understand someone not being able to get past that. That said, I also agree with Elijah that there's a lot more to the movie than just that. Um, And I think more than this being a movie about a character coming to terms with his white guilt or a movie about a filmmaker coming to terms with his white guilt, this is a movie about the moment when, as a child, it's more than just realizing your privilege. It's realizing that you, as an individual, are part of a larger set of systems, which is, I think, the primary realization in the movie. And and I, one of the important pieces of that is the main character realizing, 
I am Jewish in a country that once you dig down a little bit, does not particularly like Jews very much. Both like he and Spielberg if, had some pretty fortuitous timing for when their movies came out. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's, it's funny. I, I This is actually the first time that I have seen the movie more recently than everyone else I'm on the podcast with. Mm-hmm. I saw it uh, last weekend, actually. Um, oh, right. So yeah, I, Elijah and I saw this like early November. <laughs> I, so just to uh, put, put a time frame on this, I saw this movie literally two days after Kanye gave his first uh, I Like Hitler interview, mm. um, which was very interesting timing. Um, but I, I think just to, just to get back to what struck me about this movie, I know this is something Elijah and I have talked about a lot. There have been a surprising, there have been surprisingly few movies that have really attempted to capture or actually really tried to depict a meaningful portrait of the Jewish American experience. And I think more than almost anything else I've ever seen, this captures aspects of what it is to be Jewish and what it means to feel Jewish in America in a way that I don't know if I've ever really seen on screen. Um, and it, it, it's funny. I think the moment that first hit home for me was uh, Aaron's basically speech about his mother dying in the pogroms, which is basically not explicit, but that's that's basically what it was. Like when basically as a kid that is the first time the main character is actually being forced to realize wait there there are people who want to kill me just for being jewish i think it was i think it was aaron's i think it was aaron's grandma and uh no no it was uh his grandpa was telling a story about his great grandma oh okay right 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 um cuz basically it was uh her basically his great grandmother's parents died that's that's what it was yeah 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 so yeah, yeah. aaron's grandma yeah but, but yeah, James Joyce talked about like that's basically straight what happened to his family. Like his 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 like grandma watched like her mom like get beheaded in the pogroms. Yeah, uh, I would say probably a fair amount of of American Jews. You go back far enough, mm-hmm. you have stories in your family of fairly horrible things happen. Mm-hmm. I, I I not to get go into too much detail, but I, I definitely do. Mm-hmm. And I think there is something. Like the the line that I generally use to describe what it feels like to be Jewish sometimes, you're not Jewish until you are. I don't like I don't wake up every day and think to myself, oh, I am Jewish. I am carrying my Jewishness with me everywhere I go in the world. But every so often there it feels like there is something I press up against that makes me acutely aware of how conditional my kind of status as uh, uh, a white American is. And I think there is something in this movie of the main character kind of confronting this for the first time and kind of how uncomfortable that realization feels. Well, so I want to ask you guys then about because I mean, I think obviously there's a lot to be said about like how th- the treatment that he gives his parents in this movie. And I think it's fascinating just listening to some of the interviews I've heard James Gray give and now on in uh, how like, you know, unsentimental he is and talking about some of that stuff. And, how, and it's interesting just how he's really not like trying to just like portray his parents in the best possible light. Um, but 
and I, in some ways that's like a much bigger part of the movie, but like given where we are now, I want to ask you about the, and kind of jump ahead and ask you about the, the, the presence of the Trumps in this movie. Cause I think a lot of people like kind of heard that when first people first started seeing it and they're like, what the Fred Trump is a character in this movie. And I, people but like, we just, when critics first started seeing it and they heard about that and they're like, how, how can you do this in a way that just doesn't seem like all that, like, you know, cockneyed and uh, enforced or just uh, gratuitous. And, and apparently, and again, it's apparently something straight out of James Gray's life. Like he was sent to a private school where Fred Trump was on the board of directors and saw Marianne Trump give a speech. And like this, in some version of the conversation that the, his that Paul has with Fred Trump in this movie, like actually happened, where Fred Trump is like trying to like um, uh, trying to like kind of weasel in or trying to like kind of like pry a little bit to figure out what the what his real last name is when he can tell this kid doesn't fit in. And that's kind of like probably one of the first examples I think James Gray would say of when like he was kind of acutely aware of his otherness in that way. And I'm wondering, like, I mean, what, what, what like, Elijah, what do you think when you like heard that like the Trumps are going to be a presence in this movie? And like, how deftly do you think he ultimately pulled off doing that? Yeah, well, I mean, I honestly couldn't say that I was particularly surprised. And I think this is this is where this conversation will will get deeply Jewish for, okay. <laughs> for the for the listeners. Um, uh so i mean i don't think it's particularly surprising to anybody listening that you know jewish geography is a thing this idea of you know that there are nexuses of jewish presence in the united states and um you know you can kind of sort of gen generally depending on your relationship to these different uh you know loci you hey, can... heck we, we might all be cousins you know <laughs> right. <laughs> right i mean and and so i mean you know i grew up in in florida but my uh kind of jewish locus in the united states was in new york mm -hmm. um and it's a it's a very large uh, and yet surprisingly not very large uh jewish community um and you know that was just a reality um in the in the jewish community in the 80s in new york is you know is this position that a lot of uh jewish families were in at the time of we have been assimilated into the 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 perceived white uh cultural sphere and that has given us privilege and money and access to things and one of those things right is the option for private education for our kids but the problem that a lot of jewish families faced is that at the time uh you know this is right kind of as jewish families are starting to uh you know or rather this is at the height of jewish families ha kind of having pushed away from the ghetto system having pushed away from uh you know ethnic neighborhoods and have moved out all over the place so there's not really a large presence of like jewish private schools so if you want to say if you're in new york in the 1980s and you're not living in a 100 jewish community and you want to send your kid to private school, you have very few choices. And at the time, yeah, I mean, the, the Trumps were a huge presence uh, in, in that area. Um, they, the, Q, the Q Forest School is not the only one. It's, a, you know, the Q, Q Gardens in Queens. 
Um, that's where uh, James Gray went. Um, that's where the that's where Paul Graff, the character in the movie, goes. But that wasn't the only school like that. Um, and I can tell you, it was a it's a weird relationship because this is the reality, right? The presentation of Fred Trump as <laughs> like effectively an American Nazi, you know, with a with a weirdly, uh, you know, kind of acute anti-Jewish sentiment that he can kind of hone in on without, that was well known. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there was sort of this like, this feeling of like, well, maybe if we just don't talk about it, maybe we just pretend like it's not happening, eventually they'll forget that we're Jewish or we'll just sort of cease to be viewed as an outsider. And it, and it, lead, it leads to, you know, the dysfunction that is, for example, my family was not in 2016, big Trump supporters, but for most of my childhood, like, you know, we watched The Apprentice. My grandmother was a, you know, like met Donald Trump on one or two occasions back in the 1980s and 90s. Um, there was a lot of Jewish families had a lot of respect for the Trumps um, because of, you know, quote, quote unquote, respect because of this. They, they, they were the face of the American establishment that on some level we wanted to be part of. Exactly. Like, as in, broadly speaking, Jude. I, I didn't realize they even had that profile in the 80s. I thought they were just kind of like, you know, just so rich people. that's a very generational thing. Like, I think for people in our rough age range, yeah. there's kind of a, oh, the Trump's kind of entered our public consciousness with Donald Trump in kind of the apprentice era. But the Trumps no, have I, I been. Kinda knew, I kind of knew Trump did stuff in the 80s because, like, he was like, there's like documentaries, you know, about him buying football teams and stuff like that. But I didn't realize, like, quite just before that that like fred had that kind of profile at least in new york no oh, absolutely. In, in new york, in new york absolutely yeah, yeah okay i didn't i didn't realize that yeah yeah fred the the trumps were a were a big uh fixture in new york throughout the the 70s and, and i mean you're talking about a time when by at that point there was already uh you know there was already there was already some some <laughs> some schmaltz on the paper shall we say um you know, because you're talking about the, the by the 70s, the Trumps, uh, Fred Trump is getting in trouble with the, you know, Justice Department Civil Rights Task Force for violating the Fair Housing Act. So it's not, you know, this is, it's not like people were oblivious to what was going on. Fred Trump did not have the greatest reputation in New York, but that's what I mean, where it's like, at the same time, he's a white multi multi-billionaire so you know you there at the time the feeling was that was what you should aspire towards yeah i mean i think when when i heard the trumps were in the movie like i i feel like the end there there was an initial response from some people that oh this is james gray time trying to make this movie feel timely and right. trying to kind of tie it back into the present but again if you look at the specifics of the period it really does make total sense for them to to be fixtures and in this very specifically New York story. Well, also like, I guess, you know, it's interesting. I I keep referencing these interviews I've heard with him, but he was like, yeah, I was 11 years old when I heard this speech that Marianne gave, but like, I I could kind of tell she was full of shit then. And it's this, I mean, yeah, I guess it, it, it just so happens. He finally like was in the right place to make this movie at a point where like the Trump's name is, uh, it means something even different in America. But at the same time, it's like, I think it just kind of like underscores like, I guess how we don't really learn our lessons, I suppose, and how, you know, I think a lot of what it's getting at is like how, I mean, one thing that kind of struck me the first time I, or when I watched the movie, 
And I, I heard I heard the speech when I listened to another got when it got played. I think when I listened to James Gray on Fresh Air. But like when I watched the movie, I was like, okay, well, like yeah, this is kind of like silly in that like you know, um, like just like the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Like that'll get the eye roll for me. Whatever. Whenever I hear something kind of kind of speech like that, but then kind of hit me again when I heard it again uh, as part of this podcast. That like it was like, oh, like she's giving this speech to like a bunch of kids that are already probably pretty rich, uh, unless like you know. And it was like, all right, it's really interesting how it's like you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's somewhat, somewhat of a warning. Like, yeah, we don't want to necessarily want to aspire to this, but like the fact that she's giving it to a bunch of rich kids, like that, then you can kind of understand like how, uh, how those kind of like ideologies just kind of get like recycled and reused a lot. And I just thought it was kind of a smart way to kind of weave that in without necessarily like beating you over the head with it even more than you already feel like you might be when, again, you're using the Trumps in a movie set in the eighties in 2022. So So I, I, I just thought it was smart. I thought, it, you know, and I don't really want to get too sidetracked on this because I know we have points we want to hit. Yeah. But like, for me, I thought that the the inclusion of the Trumps, a reality in James Gray's life, I didn't think was disingenuous in that regard. I also thought the more subtle, well, it's, I mean, you can argue about its subtlety, but clearly it's more subtle than literally including the Trumps. You mentioned, you know, how, you know, Marianne, uh, Trump is giving this speech to all these kids who are already rich. The, I felt like the implicit, you know, reality that was being presented, especially with the two kids that are like jerks to Paul in his, you know, short time that we see there, the implication, Slash right? Become is, his friends. They be, right. Become his friends. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, but the implication, right, is those are the people who are going to grow up and vote for Donald Trump. They are the they are the primary age voting block. You're talking about, you know, people who in 2016 would be in their, you know, late uh, late 40s, early 50s, and white, you know, <laughs> white, right? And that's and rich. And I felt like this the almost stronger implication, right, is because we talked about and we can get back to right the realization that you're a part of a system. But also just this implicit understanding that it's like the people who surround you, yeah, they might change over time, but like those the if they change if they change for the better, it's a miracle. More likely than not, they're only going to get worse. And you know, I thought that was a very uh, very prescient point that the movie was making was you know kind of like mm-hmm, not all it's, it's a feedback loop of like these preaching to the choir that will then you know grow up and become the well i mean again to to point to how it is a system you're looking at how a system kind of reproduces itself and and continues yeah yeah yeah, that was that that was that that was kind of where my head went when i like when i again like when i when i when i thought about the audience but like yeah i quickly i mean again like we have plenty of other stuff to get to but were you did you guys know jessica chastain was going to be in the movie yeah yeah okay. I, I missed uh, yeah. that i was like i was like i, I, I did not know that like I, I feel like i knew a lot of the cast and like somehow that that slipped by me i was like so confused when i was watching that that looks a josh. lot like jessica chastain i didn't yeah. know actually you're, josh you're you know who was originally supposed biggest... to be right oh, okay you know who it was originally supposed to be no kate blanchett what yeah just wow. uh, just to tie it back to the last podcast we did but Jesus, interesting. Yeah, no the the casting changed a lot for this movie it was originally kate blanchett in uh the Jessica Chastain role, Oscar Isaac in the Jeremy Strong role, and Robert De Niro in the uh, as, as in the Anthony Hopkins role. Huh. 
Interesting. It's, it's funny. Not even any of the alternate castings. Uh, well, I mean, I guess different Jessica guys, same thing. I, I didn't really have a lot to say on it, but I, I, I was, I thought a lot about the fact that like none of these like lead Jewish characters were played by Jewish actors. Uh, well, Oscar Isaac. Uh, Is he Jewish? Yeah. Oh, I forgot that. I, I feel like I looked at, maybe I did see that somewhere and I looked it up and I, maybe it just didn't show up as him being Jewish, but like, I guess I, maybe I did know he was Jewish. Has like, Ben yeah. and I's argued over disappointment about Moon Knight and the, the lack, in my opinion, of sufficient Jewish content for an actual Jewish hero played by a Jewish person. Yeah. Oh, I did, I, I did not know the lead character in Moonlight was supposed to be Jewish. Oh, yeah. Moon Knight, yeah. It's, it's, uh... it's, it's a thing. Well, so, well, like, but, but, so wait, so, but you're saying Oscar Isaac is Jewish? Yes. Yeah. Okay, you're saying there should have been more Jews around him in that show is what you're saying? No, 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 more, they, like, the show doesn't really address in oh, a oh, meaningful that he is way oh, okay, I got that you. he is Jewish, which was... But yeah, no, it was, it was just weird between, like, between this and the Fablemans, like, uh, the, neither the parents in the Fablemans were Jewish, the parents here weren't, uh, Anthony Hopkins isn't Jewish, I was like, I don't, I mean, like, I'm not gonna, like, question the, the director who's Jewish, he gets to cast his movie the way he wants to, I was just like, it's kind of interesting, that, like, and I, I spent, I spent a not insignificant amount of time before I did the Fablemans podcast, like, looking at the Wikipedia for Jewish actors born in the 70s and 80s, trying to figure out who else I would have put in this movie um but like we got we got far more important stuff to get to but like i mean this is a thing i've thought about but um but yeah i guess like stepping back for a minute we talked to, you're talking about you know well actually elijah you've used the term you've used the phrase a couple of times like learning you're part of a system but i'm wondering uh if i if i can ask you about that but also tie it into the family a little bit because you really haven't talked a lot about the family life that he's so he's so closely recreated here and i, and I think i maybe also thought about it in terms of just like you know uh seeing your parents as people in a different way uh because there's always a point in a young kid's life when that becomes a thing also but like, i think it's got to be kind of eye-opening and uh maybe it's not the way you exactly thought about it but like we see a lot of them just watching ronald reagan in this movie and i mean i think not exactly being like huge fans of him at the same time but at the same time uh there's other parts where the movie where the parents you know express some not so progressive views and uh i mean with especially when they learn about the time that uh, paul is spending with johnny so i think he's like i think it's interesting like what did you think about how he kind of like utilized his family to like kind of inform how he was starting to kind of see like, you know, the outside world, especially when he says he sees how they react to this friend that he's so closely like formed a connection with. Yeah. I mean, I think part of, part of the, the recognition that you're, you know, part of a system, right. I think is it, it, it's tied in implicitly in some ways to another realization that I think most kids have at some point which is that, you know, your parents are not perfect. Your parents, more likely than not, uh, are, are only slightly more mature than you are, um, you know, and I think you can approach kind of, you want to talk about, like, his parents' behavior about Johnny um, in general, right? You There is again you know it's a very it's a sort of raw issue but the the reality that i think james gray is tapping into is this idea of sort of the 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 conditional whiteness of jewish people and that sort of underlies a lot of how in the past uh jews were taught to behave around other minorities in the u.s which is essentially like if you just pretend that they don't exist if you treat them the same way the white people do then you will have the same like then that will put you on the same level as other white people um 
And the, the problem with that is that it's a, it's a complete, I mean, there's obviously a bajillion problems with that, but from, from just a logistical standpoint, right. It is such a corrosive mentality because of it. It, it has like no, it has no half-life. You can't every generation that becomes a harder value to instill ironically the more jewish americans become assimilated the whiter they become the harder it is to try and tell your kids don't hang out with black people um don't hang out with latino people don't you know don't associate with other people you know who are not us and that's i think that that is what we're seeing in this movie is Paul, you know, James Gray kind of sort of making a very, not a, not, not an aggressive stand per se, but sort of pointing out the, the fundamental systemic flaw in his parents in that regard. This idea that all of the things, all of the, all of the, practiced virtues that they've been taught about how to how to fit in how to be white are no longer functional not that they were ever functional necessarily to begin with but how they're particularly not functional now i i don't i i would agree with all of that but i think one moment in the movie that i think paints a much more complicated portrait of of kind of Jewish identity and Jewish identity around race. And I think actually gets more to the crux of what Gray actually believes is uh, Paul's final conversation with his grandfather. And and because ever, everything Elijah is saying about Jewish identity and Jewish like and the desire for Jewish assimilation is true, but there is also another piece of Jewish identity, which is solidarity. And I mean, like, Look, historically, Jew, like Jews are not a people who have been loved around the world. And one of, I think, the lessons that, because again, Jew, Jewish people are not a monolith. And we're, we're talking about the Jewish community. We're talking about kind of Jewish identity. But not all Jewish people approach their, like, their relationship with their religion, their relationship with their own people's history in the same way. And there is a branch of what I would call a drive for solidarity in Jewish identity too, which is we are a people who have been fucked with and fucked over around the world for a very long time. And we have a responsibility to not allow other people to be treated in that same way, which I know is something that when I associate like my family's relationship with Judaism, to me, that is something that feels like a very important part of it. And, and I think that moment with Paul and Aaron in the park it, it is this reckoning because previously in the movie, we have seen Aaron not entirely push back or even moments echo some less than progressive ideas. He doesn't push back when it's brought up that Paul is hanging out with black kids at, at his school. But in that moment, and this is partially tied in with Aaron's knowledge that this is probably the last thing he's ever going to be able to tell his grandson. What is more important at the end of the day? When you see, do like do the right thing, and when you see well, someone who is being hurt, when you see someone who is being bullied, when you see someone who is being treated with disrespect, you stand up for them. 
Well, he tells them both things. That's the interesting thing about that scene is that yeah. he's like, you got to look out for yourself. Your name is gray. It doesn't sound too Jewish. Like you can really make it if you like make the most of your opportunity at school, but do the right thing. And, and like, and stand up when you like see something wrong going on. And I think like, that's something that James Gray kind of struggled with in a way. Yeah. It's cause like, he like, you know, he ultimately like had to do his best to like fit in at that school. And like, I think he, like, he's acknowledged like, look, I'm not like beating myself up that much over the fact that I couldn't end all racism when I was 11. Like, what could I, what could I do at the end of the day? But at the same time, like he probably had, he probably like ended up assimilating into that school in a way that like, you know, maybe he wouldn't have done as easily if he was out there, like, you know, just being a complete activist, you know, That's, and, and- that that's like yeah. part of the struggle of generational right. trauma, right? Yeah. And and that's so obviously Jews don't have a monopoly on on generational trauma, but by golly, do we have a monopoly on fucking celebrating it in the weirdest, you know, most uh ho- holistic sense. Um, you know, any any right, all three of us I'm sure have heard, but you know, it's uh you know, when, when anybody asks about a Jewish holiday, there's there's only two kinds of Jewish holidays, right? There is, they tried to kill us, let's eat. And they tried to kill us, today we don't eat. <laughs> That's every Jewish holiday. That's I mean, about right. And, and yeah. we love trees. There we, <laughs> well, sure. we love trees. Sure. That's, that's I... one of them. But, you know, the, the crux of that conversation with Aaron, and maybe even kind of a, a, the essence of the entire film is this idea that like we have to communicate this notion of solidarity like that that we have like we have been bullied and so we will not suffer being bullied or others being bullied in our presence but how do we communicate that without passing on some degree of generational trauma um and that's like that that is the paradox of of Jewish identity in the U.S. is like the whole idea of coming to the U.S. was to make a new start and avoid the generational trauma. And we end up kind of running headlong into it again, especially at this, you know, in the period the movie is talking about in 1980. Um, And now it feels so weird to say like, yeah, in 1980, it's particularly strong when we have multiple people in the public sphere right now saying that Hitler's great. But more to the point, right? Like, that's like that's what I loved about that scene when Paul tells uh when Aaron tells Paul the story of his grandmother um and their you know exodus from Ukraine um is it's it's hard uh because it is passing on that jet generational trauma it's it clearly scares Paul and I know that that was probably a scene that people who have never had that experience would feel like oh it's a little hammy but like again that's a real thing that like i i had moments like that i'm sure all three of us have met holocaust survivors because we all you know to some degree had a jewish education at some point and i'm sure it was there was an effort made to bring you know to bring holocaust survivors to bring shoah survivors you know or, or to bring us to meet them that was you know my experience at least and so I think every one of us has had that experience and can speak to how real and, you know, that that feeling is. Yeah. And I think like, I, I, I don't know, I, I guess the, there doesn't have to be an easy answer to all of this. It's just like, I think when you when you factor in all that trauma and like you can understand how it's it's 
it's something where a, a Jewish person is not going to easily just be able to like, you know, uh, you know, shit, sh- shit, I guess like set all that aside to just like totally like, you know, do the selfless thing when they're already facing like, you know, the pressures that Paul does as soon as he shows up to that school, especially when you're like 11 or 12 years old. Like, again, you're going to become aware of some things, but you're not going to necessarily do everything the way you would with the hindsight of what James Ray does has when he's making this movie. But it's funny. I, I, uh, the, 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 honestly, the last time I'll mention all these interviews I've listened to him, it's like, I think he feels some kind of way about it because going to that school ultimately like was a lot of him to get like scholarship money to go to USC film school. It's like, he doesn't even end up where he is today without like doing everything he did. So you can understand like, like if he just stayed in public school, like he came from a family that was like, yeah, better off than Johnny's family, but not one that could have afforded for him to go to like film school at like NYU or USC or UCLA, which are like the three places he would have wanted to go. And I think USC was choice number three, but like it worked out there because like he got a lot of scholarship money because he went to that school. So it's like, you know, I think like he can, he can think all about how like his grandpa, like, like said to do this, but at the same time, like wanted him to like, you know, fit in and make the most of this opportunity that he was like paying for him to get. And he ultimately did that. And I mean, like he, he they show him like trying to like kind of take the fall for Johnny at the end, but like, you know, I mean, it, it, that, that, that's, that's obviously not how it worked out. And it's like, I, I can understand, like, again, I think it's why it's like kind of justifiable. Like there's nothing wrong with it being like an exercise of like processing that guilt because he was put in like an impossible, in, in an impossible situation for an 11 year old when you're just becoming aware of like all of this stuff that like, your family has been through and what it means to be Jewish when you're getting confronted like it about it in that setting. It's like, I, I, who knows like how you would have really have acted. And I think if nothing else, the movie is like a good depiction of how you like, how, how you kind of come to grips with all that. And it's, it's okay that there's not like an easy, like right answer where it's like, Oh, that's the path you should have taken or something like that. I, I think it's fine that it's not that clear cut, you know, it's, it's fine. I think there is an assumption sometimes when we speak about uh, kind of childhood reflection, like autofiction, that that type mm-hmm. of film, that with the benefit of time, the direct, like the filmmaker or the writer is meant to have arrived at some sort of clarity or a, a full processing of everything from that era. They're supposed to be able to look back at their childhood with a clear <laughs> a clear lens. More often than not, look, you're still just as mess of a, just as much of a mess as an adult as you were as a kid, and you are still trying to figure everything out. Sometimes the more you try to kind of figure figure out your place in the world, figure out the, the world itself, the more of a mess everything feels. And I think the occasional messiness, the occasional sloppiness of Armageddon time I think that feels like a very honest portrait of an artist looking back on their life and not necessarily having all of the answers. I, I, I think that. the movie also does a good job of not, uh, not you know, I think it allows some of that sloppiness that Ben mentioned in order to not give Paul more insight than he should have at any given moment. Um, I think the movie does a really great job actually articulating how children behave. Absolutely. Um, Paul is not there is not a there isn't a particular to me like yes I can clearly tell that this is to some degree autobiographical right because some of some of the moment to moment narrative occurrences are way too specific but it does not feel even like the Fablemans which was a movie that I enjoyed but like Paul, most of the movie, Paul feels like an idiot. And I'm like, I don't mean that to be mean. Like he, but he feels 
He does not feel artificially smarter or stupider than he should be. This is not an adult kind of transplanting the wisdom of an adult onto a child. This is a fucking kid. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. And he, I mean, Banks Repeated does a great job with it. And I think, you know, everything that you get with that is part of what makes this movie kind of magical in a way. I don't want to say magic because that implies something else, but like, a lot of the the best moments to me of this film were sort of that like raw sort of edginess and and imperfection you know i'm talking about like silliness at the wrong moments just like some of that like some of the strongest moments of the film i mean part of it's one of the few times this entire year well apart from everything everywhere all at once where i've actually laughed like really laughed out loud uh in a movie uh was you know like when he when he gets in trouble uh for at school for the first time for uh you know be, when he gets caught smoking with johnny um and he gets taken to the principal's office like this is this is very clearly and very like an important and you know a scene of lots of gravity but paul does not understand it in the moment and the way that that gets played is like when the when the uh principal is like you know do you want to go to jail and his mom's like, well, do you? And <laughs> Paul's like, no, obviously, <laughs> obviously no. Um, it just like, I mean, great delivery from Banks or Peta, but that's, that's what I'm talking about is like, they, you know, there, these certain scenes have weird tonality to them because that is the way that as a kid, you would understand it. It happens again later in the film when him and Johnny are, as an astronaut you know talking about his his future and and banks on the on the beach doing painting and it's just like it's totally ridiculous and and it feels somewhat out of place until you consider like how how really accurate that is for what a kid is doing to process these things yeah no i mean i i would just generally say uh yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that was very striking to me about the movie was the way it authentically depicted kind of a, a child's perspective. And I do think that actually does go back to kind of what I was talking about earlier, part of kind of something that goes along with realizing, again, that you are part of a system, your life is not just this individual story, it's part of something larger, is, look, when you're a kid, you don't necessarily, you, I mean, you don't necessarily think about your place in the world, but you also don't necessarily have a clear understanding of the future. And again, what exactly it means to go from point A to point B to point C. And again, that, like, I, it, it's the piece of that kind of fantasy depiction that really did strike me is that, again, when he, they view themselves as kids in all of these futuristic moments, hmm. like, because when you're a kid, you don't think, okay, well, this is what I'm going, this is going to be the adult me in this fantasy, in, in this, like, future setting. Like they see themselves as they are now. Well, I think you, you know. know I, I, I think it's interesting though is that like I think uh, Paul wants to, Paul like seems to like have some genuine desire to be an artist. Like and has made that decision well, at age. I think 11. we're seeing the birth of that. Yeah. Um. But again, like there's not really an understanding of the process that that involves, which makes sense when you are a kid, because again, it's like you may know I want to do this thing, but. Look, when you're like nine, 10, 11 years old, you don't really have a clear portrait of, well, these are all the things I have to do to get to that point. These are the things I have to do to kind of support myself as I do it. This is everything else that has to be involved with my life that may 
help or get in the way of that. Like you just, he he's starting to find something that he really loves and that is struck by a very genuine and very real reaction to what he's doing and the art he's consuming, but you don't really know what to do with that yet. And I think his lack of understanding, that totally makes sense to me. I don't know. I, I even, like even the way the movie is shot, I, I, I think that it is very easy for movies uh, depicting kids to kind of depict them as these almost kind of big, big like small people, big world. But something I really liked about this movie that actually reminded me of another New York movie from a couple, from it's, it's like six years ago at this point, uh, Little Men, the Iris Axe movie. Mm-hmm. I think that was in my top 10 of 2016. I, I really like that movie. One, one of the things that is so impressive about it, the way it frames its characters, it, it is bit like, again, if you look at a shot of them in isolation, you don't necessarily understand that these are small, like, physically small people in a larger world, it centers them in the frame in such a way that they feel like the center of the world and this like in, in the way that they actually feel internally. And, and I think uh, Armageddon Time does a really good job of balancing moments like that with moments where Paul presses up against the largeness of this world that he doesn't fully understand his place in yet. So we see moments of him and Johnny as kind of very much the center of the frame in a way that makes them feel like large, like large men. But then there will be moments of smallness where you almost feel, like see them as cowering tiny figures. Like there's some shots on the subway that are kind of jump to mind for me right now, where you actually see the smallness of them contrasted against the largeness of the actual adults on the rest of the train car. And it feels like mo- like that juxtaposition works really well to communicate this kind of growing realization the characters are having, or especially Paul is having, that their story, their personal story, is not the only story of their lives. They are part of something else. I guess kind of going off of that a little bit, I want, we, we, didn't, we still haven't talked that much about his, uh, his relationship with his parents. Um, uh, apart from them, you know, like maybe not being as progressive with respect to his new friendship as you they ideally would be. I, I'm curious, uh, what did you think about, I mean, you can, we can take this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about the performances too, I guess, but I'm wondering, like, I, again, like I mentioned it earlier, I think it's fascinating for a director to just kind of like put his parents out there in a way that's just like not that flattering. I, and I, and, and I mean, for one, I respect it though. He said he, to his credit, he, I mean, not to his credit, but uh, he did say he wasn't that upset that his dad passed away before the movie came out. I'm, 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 I'm wondering like, uh, what did, what, what do you make of a filmmaker like making that choice to like, I mean, I guess it actually, but if you listen to him, he'd say it was sanitized, but it's like, I just found it kind of striking. And like, I couldn't, and also like, I feel like sometimes when filmmakers draw from their own lives, they're a little more coy about it than James Gray has been. He just hasn't been, uh, which again, I also respect, but it's like, man, like I, I, I think it's just on top of everything we've already talked about. I think it's just like a very interesting, like depiction of a kid, like, like, like we said, like, uh, well, we, we mentioned earlier, like how he's he, like, yeah, your parents are sometimes just as immature as you are, but it's like, I mean, I think it's just like, you put that on, put that on front street in like a very stark way. And I'm wondering what kind of jumped out to you, maybe beyond the obvious, as far as like, you know, uh, just 
like, I mean, beyond, beyond the obvious of like, oh, wow, it's interesting that like he's showing his like father actually being physically abusive or his mother being physically abusive. Was there something else about that that like really stood out to you, whether it was something in Jeremy Strong or Anne Hathaway's performance or just some other choice he made with those story beats? Well, I mean, first off, you don't have to look very far back in James Gray's filmography to understand that he may have a complicated relationship with his dad. Oh, well, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's basically every single James Gray movie <laughs> in, in one way or another, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, however compromised Ad Astra was, as as James Gray has, has recently said, that is something that was communicated very clearly. Hmm. But no, I think, again, one of the things that is striking about the way his parents are depicted in the movie no one's really right. Like this isn't a, a, a thing where, oh, well, the parent, like the parents need to learn from the younger generation, the younger, like, or like, or one is wrong, one is right. This is a portrait of very messy people who are doing what they think is the best they can, even if many of the choices they're making are very, very wrong. And I think you can say that about Paul, obviously, who look is a little shit for a lot of the movie um but you can definitely say that about for example his dad who doesn't know how to reach his son in any other way than violence um and is very clearly kind of suffering from some deep insecurity about his lack of education and wants to kind of assert himself as kind of the patriarch the basically the patriarch and leader of the family despite feeling ill-equipped to do so and the, he, he deals with that in ways that are not necessarily the kindest or healthiest ways um he's outside of the fact that he beats paul he's i would say pretty emotionally unavailable to his wife in the moments where she really needs it um and I don't know. I mean, I it's 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 hard to depict your family in ways that are that unflattering, even when it's true. I know, like in my own writing, there are things about my family and things about people in my life that there is a tension between wanting to be honest and unsparing and true to what you are trying to communicate. And also deal with the fact that, look, these are very real people who either will see this movie or again, or, pe- or if they are, have passed away, people who knew them and maybe cared about them will see this movie. And it's, it's something that is very hard to navigate. And I, I have nothing but respect for how James Gray has tried to thread that needle. I, um, I would say, you know, we talked a bit about kind of uh, or rather, Ben mentioned, you know, the way that the movie kind of frames kids, and I'm going to work that into this point, uh, in that I was not particularly surprised by that, uh, by his kind of expertise in that he's always teased with his with his inspirations, but I would say this is the closest he's ever gotten to kind of touching uh movies that he's been open about as being very important to him being uh italian neorealist films like bicycle thieves umberto d and rome open city which are all movies that he's talked about and all movies that center um children in their narratives in very realistic ways um also 
you know, things like Amar Kord and uh, Lestrada and Knights in Kiberia, other movies he's talked about um, that also don't necessarily feature kids as the main aspect, but, you know, are often very uh, kind of focused on giving them equal footing, shall we say, um, on, on being, uh, you know, kind of un... Uh, or being being dispassionate feels like a mean word, but being sort of you know uh, observant of of characters. Uh, the, the common thread with that set of Fellini movies, I would say, is characters navigating a world they don't fully understand. Right, exactly, and that that's what I mean. Um, and and not and not being judgmental of that. Yeah. And and what I what I would say, you know, I agree with everything Ben said, but what I would also add is that you know you're you're we're looking at characters who have learned behaviors from their systems and from repetition and experience. Uh, and that, that goes for everyone. We see that trans, you know, transcend age and generation. Uh, Paul has learned repeated behaviors. His mother, Esther, his father, Irving, obviously have behaviors that are clearly uh you know learned and and transcend any specific moment and i i would agree that one of the things that the movie does really well is kind of not necessarily give you a right answer there's no this is it's it's not a multi-choice question because it's not really a question to begin with that's the trick of the movie right is you know for all of for example talk about Irving, talk about Paul's father, you know, for all of his flaws and his, his bad behavior and his lack of insight into what's going on in his son's life, for all of those things, at the end of the day, it's his learned behavior that really saves his son's hide. Like his ability to just become in, an inconspicuous white man in a very volatile moment is what allows him to get his son out of jail and you know with not a second thought right like that's what i love about that scene the i mean it's a yeah. very hard scene to watch but like yeah. i love that scene because the the police sergeant my guy dominic lombardozzi uh <laughs> from the wire love him uh he's playing a very I mean, they say his name is like Darienzo. It's literally our Arian. It's in the name, <laughs> like, but a very conspicuously white, conspicuously Italian American character who we are certainly meant to realize does not know that Irving or Paul are Jewish and, you know, offers essentially a, a blank favor to Irving because that's what. That's what the white guys do. Well, he, yeah, when and, he like fixes, fixed something for him once and didn't charge him or something too. Right. It, exactly. And that's that, that's that moment where it's like for all of Irving's, like for all of the shit that Irving does to Paul, it doesn't necessarily validate his worldview, but it shows that it, it, that it's in this instance, at least it is functioning. What, what also shows that like, I was just going to say, like, because I was going to bring up that scene before you did. And it's like, it's, it's just interesting that, like, you see everything you see uh, Irving doing up to that point in the movie. But then, like, 
have like a rather redeeming end to the movie. And I think it's just interesting that like James Gray is just kind of acknowledging that like, yeah, my parents are flawed, but like, I, that doesn't mean I can't like still recognize the, like, I, I can't recognize when they, they're, 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 they're good moments too, when they have better, when, when they actually have like a, a, a more, uh, a more clear headed, morally, uh, more, more, not, not as like morally dubious moment in that, like, you know, I think it's like, actually like he comes across fairly like, uh, uh, reasonable in that final scene in the car too. And it's a a sad scene though, if you really, and you really consider it because it's like, he, you know, that it's like, the only reason he's saying that to Paul is because he knows that like as and we bagged on Paul this entire time calling him stupid and whatnot but like as young and as inexperienced as Paul is the plain reality of what just happened can't be hidden from him like there's no way to hide what just happened which is that they were coded as white presented as white and got out of a dangerous situation on that alone you can't hide that from a kid and it's a really sad scene because that's what essentially, you know, Irving is sort of copping to, right? Is like, just gotta, you know, like he is making an excuse for what just happened. Well, but the thing is, he he acknowledges it as something that is wrong. And I think part of the complexity and the sadness of that moment is this is a wrong, sad thing that has happened. And you're just going to have to learn to be okay with that, which is... Yeah kind of heartbreaking and it's heartbreaking to kind of have that be what he has to pass on to his kid and and to again see the realization of everything that has just happened kind of pass over paul's face it it, like it it is an incredibly sad striking painful but very well executed sequence yeah yeah any 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 feelings like i mean about uh about jeremy strong in this movie i mean it's yeah i I, I think that look the the supporting actor performance that is is probably the flashiest and the one that it's easy to recognize would be Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. But I think look, so I, I like Jeremy Strong. I don't watch Succession, so right. I watch like so much less TV. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so look, look the, t- um, the the time you spend watching TV, you could spend two hours of that watching another movie. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's a fair point, but like you can only go to movies like so many hours. I guess you have more options in LA, but it's like, you know, <laughs> there mean, we go. There we go. I, I, the same, I mean, I, I, I'd be curious to see what you thought of Succession. Josh, you're, you're talking to two people who work in the film industry. You're not going to convince us. Yeah. I'll Wait, you don't watch Succession either, Elijah? I have not watched Succession. Oh, wow. Well, I, I, mean, the there, episode, I will say I there's actually a real show. reason why I have not watched Succession. I'm not going to ask you to like say anything mean about Adam McKay or anything if that's it. (laughs) Oh, I'll happily, you know. Um, (laughs) Look, uh, to put it as diplomatically as possible, I am uh, not what one would call a fan of Adam McKay. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I heard he was involved, it's like, I don't feel the need to watch this. And at this point, even though I've I've heard people tell me it's very good. and Well, so let me ask you then, like, I mean, is there something that you like know Jeremy Strong from where it's like, oh, I really like what he did there if it's not Succession? There hasn't really been, again, for me, like a true breakout movie that I've I've really loved him from. I've I've liked him. He made weird choices in movies. He was in that movie Serenity. He was in that Guy Ritchie movie that I don't remember the name of a couple years ago. Just doing a weird voice. 
Okay. No, I've I've liked him in everything I've seen him in. Uh, he was one of the better parts of Trial of the Chicago Seven, which is a movie I really did not like. Yeah, I was in the big um, short too. He was one of the better parts of that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he has a hard job in this movie. I think for a lot of the reasons you were just talking about a minute ago, where it's like you're he, he that guy is having to like he, he's putting on some kind of front for a lot of the movie, and then really has to show another side of himself later on. So but, it, it is pretty impressive. Well, no, but what I was getting to though is I think he has a. Uh, it's a much less flashy, much less rewarding on the surface role than like Anthony Hopkins does. But I came away incredibly impressed with uh, Jeremy Strong's performance. And I think he, basically he carried the the insecurity and the complexity of, of Irving's character inside of him very, very well. Um, I, I, and again, we, the, the movie ends with what, what is probably his largest moment and i think the fact that we see the complexity of everything that moment entails echoed on his face it, it, like it was a it was a really fantastic performance and even if just by the nature of what the role is uh anthony hopkins is probably the actor who it's easiest to come away impressed by i think jeremy strong did a fantastic job mm-hmm. um i mean look i will say i i i Anthony Hopkins' big monologue in the park did make me cry a lot, so it's kind of hard for me not to be most struck by that performance. But I, I, I think Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway uh, did really fantastic, like did really fantastic work in roles that were not always the most like obviously showy. I will say this also about the performances, specifically Amanda Hathaway and Jeremy Strong. Uh, Anthony Hopkins, I mean, I'll give a I'll give a nod to. I love Anthony Hopkins. He was great in this. Um, despite probably the you know, the bulk of Anthony Hopkins' international mega star fame being from uh, you know, uh, Silence of the Lambs, right? I've never particularly felt that Hopkins has had a hard time melting into roles. He's been he he's always you know, excellent at sort of just disappearing into whatever the role requires for him. And even if this role actually happened to be mostly just Anthony Hopkins being Anthony Hopkins, that was fine. I was actually quite impressed by Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong, who I have felt as actors tend to have trouble actually disappearing into roles. They always tend to strike me just sort of as Jeremy Strong playing a person or Anne Hathaway playing a person, right? Like they're, and that's not to say that they're bad actors. I mean, I feel like every time, every time this discussion comes up in, you know, in some form or another on your podcast, I have to qualify, right? Like there's a reason that people look up to Jimmy Stewart and, you know, (laughs) like actors who are just always, you know, who always played themselves. Like that's, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But I feel like Jeremy Strong for the most part in his career, I sort of think of as just being like Jeremy Strong. Like he's always sort of playing like a slightly manic New Yorker (laughs) and you know, what, whatever flavor that takes on, if it's Jerry Rubin or, you know, or, uh, or, um, you know, what is his name? Vinny in the big short or whatever. Vinny and Jerry Rubin are pretty different though. And they're very different, but they both strike me as this is just New Yorkers. They, well, they both just strike me as this is Jeremy strong. Like I did not look, I did not think that his performance as Jerry Rubin was transformative. It wasn't like, Holy shit. That really is Jerry Rubin. It's like, this is a really great Jerry Rubin impression by Jeremy strong, which is fine. 
but my point being this this movie actually felt like an instance where both of them really did disappear into the roles i did not feel like this was jeremy strong just being you know somebody else or anne hathaway just being somebody else um both of those characters i felt and it's probably i mean i i I'll give the actors a fair amount of credit, but it's also probably has something to do with the writing. Like this, the script was very, uh, very wonderfully naturalistic and very, um, you know, conducive to that, uh, to that transformation, to that ability for both of those actors to just sort of fade into their roles. Another one, uh, not going to get a lot of credit, I would think, but uh, Tova Felsha, who I think some people might know for from Law and Order or The Walking Dead for some time in the past, but she's she's been around for a very long time. Uh, she plays Aaron. She plays Anthony Hopkins' character's um, uh, wife. She's she's great, uh, and she's another in another moment where I like I've seen her in so much that sometimes it's hard for me to be like to. You know, every time she pops on, I'm like, oh, it's Toa Felcha. But uh, uh, in this movie, I did not have that. This was just a great performance by her in a very small role. Um, yeah, and, uh, and beyond beyond the performances from like the family members like that, I just think we should also shout out the fact that, I mean, maybe it's not the hardest thing to do given, but like, I think the the, the production design and just ha- like, you could tell like he like, you could tell even before I heard him say in an interview, you could tell that house was straight out of his childhood. And I think it's, I, I, th- I think that just kind of goes to like making all those, uh, making all those family scenes feel all the more vivid and lived in. And that like, apparently they were very meticulous in trying to recreate what a shot at home felt like he uses, uh, James Ray used his brother as a resource. And I feel like that all shows and just goes to like making that feel like a, um, as uh, claustrophobic and uncomfortable and manic and, and uh, in just crazy of a place as it seems like it was in the movie they do certainly do a good job of like making getting getting you to get a feel for that for that house in the atmosphere that he was uh he was growing up in and i mean and, and while we're talking performances i think uh you could just shout out bank repeat one more time like i mean yeah does a really good job of being a little shit amidst a lot of those uh a lot of those family scenes it only just kind of like adds to the uh tension in a in, in a very very uh amusing at times way in a movie that like you know does find a decent amount of spots here and there for some laughs i'd say more so than your average james ray movie admits all the really heavy shit going on no there's there's an incredibly clear uh specificity of place and actually one of the things i know like james gray talked about is how surprisingly hard it was to find places in new york to film that actually looked like new york in 1980 um just yeah, the, school the, did, the school did, the school did not want him to use that area apparently yeah <laughs> or use no, the school, understandably this, the city has changed so much that, again, there was a very specific look that he was trying to capture, and which I think he did, but it, it was much harder to make uh, New York in 2022 look like New York in 1980 in a way that really felt convincing than it maybe should have been. Yeah, I I mean, in this kind of, I, I will, I, I want to kind of wrap to an, that to another point, right, about sort of the idea of, of fading memory, but like it was the, it, it was a problem six or seven years ago when they made a most violent year um yeah. uh you know the the jc chandor film i, I was uh, actually had, just thinking about that as, as had, it, had a very similar issue about you know kind of trying to pick like very tightly specific uh very similar time know, period right 1981 so also with jessica chastain also mm-hmm. jessica chastain there's the uh, there's and the oscar isaac there. yeah <laughs> 
well he didn't he didn't make it into the yeah no, so just the final I, lineup yeah. for yes um I think something that this movie communicates really well you know we could talk about Anthony Hopkins performance right we've sort of danced around it <laughs> um something that this movie communicates really well that I don't you know I think it's hard for people to wrap their head around is you know I talked earlier about the idea of like passing on you know generational knowledge and generational memory and in some cases generational trauma the reality is that generation in specific is basically gone um the generation that actually lived through the holocaust is getting considerably smaller uh by by the day and i think this movie and anthony hopkins performance are particularly important in that regard um because the reality is is i mean i know i mean we talked about it earlier and kind of us our experiences meeting you know holocaust survivors when we were younger but the reality is is like i have jewish contemporaries who i you know who are are my age who i know either did not meet holocaust survivors or if they did they were extremely young and don't remember it and the reality is, is I'm, that... I'm almost more in that latter group. Like I, I, I was young, but I remember it, but couldn't really tell you much about it. Like I, it's, it's pretty distant for me. And, and, you know, the, the fact of the matter is, is now, you know, the next two generations of young Jews, uh, by and large, probably just won't have that experience at all. Um, and so it's, you know, as, as Jews, it's an important part of our culture to be storytellers and to pass on generational knowledge um, in, in, you know, a, an impactful, meaningful way. And I thought, you know, for all of the flashiness, maybe of Anthony Hopkins performance, that was maybe the, the best and simplest part was just, you know, this, the, the very simple idea of communicating that experience to people who might not have had that. Um, and part of that is, you know, is in his performance. Part of it is also in the very uh, specific and very lovingly done uh, rendering of New York in a very specific time, you know, because all of those things are very, very rapidly fading from, from view. And I think it's, it's a good thing that this movie exists if, ju- if literally just for that alone. No, I mean, th- that's something that I, I think I brought up earlier and that I know like we have talked about before is that for all, de- like for all depictions of Jewish characters that there have been, there is a surprisingly minimal depiction of Jewish American history and Jewish American identity in a meaningful way on screen. Like there, there are way fewer movies that actually tackle it in a meaningful way than you would expect. I, I, um, I, I can, I, I can only think of like a handful that have come out in the last ten years, even that really do that. You know, so not even. No, it's it's funny. Like one of the the movies I watched over the last couple of years was Crossing the Lancy. I watched that for the first time this year. Um, actually, so I, I liked it a lot. But one of the things that was kind of so striking about that movie is how authentic, like the actual context of that felt entirely like Jewish in a very communal way. And it was just kind of surprising to see even just kind of a studio rom-com with that cultural context, but to the much larger point and, and like actually tying more deeply into kind of what Elijah was saying, like movies that have actually attempted to kind of deal with 
like Jewish American identity and history in a meaningful way, you really do have to look harder than you might think. And even even once you kind of find them all, it's a much less complete portrait than it should be. And movies like Armageddon Time that actually try to depict that time period in an authentic and meaningful and evocative way, they are important. And they do serve as a meaningful record of our own history. I don't know. It's it, it it's funny. Like outside of look outside of the movie itself, uh, like I I think kind of the particular Jewishness of the like of of Armageddon time hit me in a way I didn't really expect it to, and I think that's part of why I keep coming back to that because it's it's look it's I I love I I love James Gray as a filmmaker. I've always loved James Gray as a filmmaker, but I think as as messy as the movie was at times that is something that hit me that I wasn't necessarily expecting to hit me the way it did so it's it's part of what is so striking about it and it for all for as much as it was I would say a very uh look superficial and ar- inarguably lacking portrait of of uh black people on screen there is a specificity in it that hit home in a way that I have very rarely seen done um and I, I think mean, well, on, well, I mean, there is a fairly uh, prominent black character though in the movie. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's but specific, it look, it's specific to his experience and in a way that like you might not be as developed as like you know. Uh, he is a very thinly developed character, and I think like there there have been a lot of people calling out how I would say like thinly depicted he is, and I can't at all disagree with that. Can't disagree with it, but like that it's when it's from uh, Paul's perspective, it's like uh, I, I don't know how much more like he would have no, he would have even known if you took it straight out of his brain i guess yeah no and and, and i i'm not necessarily saying like i don't know if give like giving johnny more space within the film to feel fully fleshed out and developed would have made it a stronger film i just know that that it, that is a reaction i had to it that for as much as i do really like this movie it, this is a part like this is a part of it how yeah. how thin that character feels and how yeah. i i can understand why people have a negative reaction to the racial politics of the movie yeah should also add uh johnny's played by jalen webb i don't know if i've said his name yet i think given everything that we've just said and again you can't disagree that it might be a little more underwritten than other parts of the movie i think he makes the most of it um and like i think he leaves more an impression more of an impression than you would expect given what's on the page uh and like some of those scenes where he is you know, not, where he's very much not the person he is in the first half of the movie really, really stuck with me. Uh, ben, is there anything else we haven't got t- touched on yet you want to get to? I don't know. I mean, I think we covered a lot of the major points. Like, I, I do think that the visual uh, the, the visual language of the movie is not as flashy as some of James Gray's other stuff. Obviously, uh, Ad Astra was playing with kind of a different scale. The Lost City of Z was much uh, more kind of classically epic. In, in its scope and its visual language, the immigrant was, was, I think, playing with like much more of kind of a golden age Hollywood uh, look. And even some of his kind of earlier New York films, I think, were flashy in a way that Armageddon Time often isn't. But I do think it's worth bringing up that, again, whether it's the quiet, like the, the way characters are framed or the moments there of just genuinely incredible beauty uh, that we do see. Even if the the look of the movie is more naturalistic than a lot of James Gray's other stuff, 
all of those visual choices do feel appropriate and the actual breaks of that more conventional form are really striking like there's one shot of Anne Hathaway in the car that is I think one of the most beautiful and impressive single shots of any movie I've seen this year hmm. um and I think because again we are like we are playing with this very intimate kind of reflective story I think that quieter and more naturalistic uh visual language was an appropriate choice I have not seen the Fablemans yet. I will see it eventually, even though uh, Spielberg is very much not my favorite. But I think the relatively like stripped down style of Armageddon time was very much the right choice for this particular reflection of this particular character. Elijah, any other any thoughts on what he just said or anything else we haven't gotten to? I, I can't disagree with like, you know, your analysis there of how it looks, but like, you know, I think you, you, it's it's um understandable that James Gray would get how to shoot that part of New York too. Um, but Elijah, any other thoughts on the movie that you wanted to get out there that we didn't touch on that uh, whether it be about the look as Ben was just talking about or something else? Uh, yeah, with a look, I mean, obviously, you know, I like to call out the technicians. Um, you guys, uh, Darius Kanji uh, had a had a very uh, apt team around him, or um, James Gray had a very apt team. Uh, Darius Kanji did the uh, the shooting. Um, He is an immensely experienced cinematographer whose work uh, has spanned all kinds of different uh, kind of views of of a city, uh, is one way to say it. Uh, he's worked with James Gray before. He, I believe he shot, uh, he didn't shoot at Asher, but I think he shot Lost City and The Immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and another recent work from him was uh, Uncut Gems, you know, another movie, you know, kind of a depiction of a certain type of New York City. Um, he, so he also was- shot another movie from this year that, however, I feel about that movie. Uh, the actual oh cinematography in it was fantastic. Bardo, you, yeah. you want to say the name? <laughs> uh, no, uh, no, I already did, but I have not seen yeah. Bardo yet, so I can't comment. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, uh, just I think that was a great, a great choice to bring Darius in, and um, Darius obviously brings with him uh, an, a, a pool of of talent and you know connections. One of them being uh, the colorist from uh, over at Harbor, uh, Damian Vanderkrissen. Uh, who's who worked on Uncut Gems as well? I think also did. I think he also did Bardo. I think he he kind of works now with with uh, Darius a lot. Um, but I really liked uh, the palette for this movie. I felt that it was elegant. It didn't fall into the trap of being you know particularly desaturated or overly you know stylized to make things seem old. Um, it was just very gently kind of pushed into this sort of filmic uh, look, which I thought was a really good call because it doesn't, it's not distracting. But we talked about the cinematography. I also uh, would would call out uh, Scott Morris, who is um, kind of, I think he's, I don't know how many things he's worked with James Gray on. The editor. He, uh, just The editor. Yeah, yeah, sorry. The editor. He, um, he worked on... Uh, he worked on Ad Astra, I think, as well. But I think he uh, is, you know, a very talented editorial work. Uh, there's a lot of these moments, you know, that, that Ben called out very striking visual moments 
and a lot of them are really uncomfortable um a lot of them are not necessarily places or moments we want to be in and yet they are given room to breathe and uh, i'd I say think... a really really good example of one of those moments would be the scene where irving beats paul yeah yes um which is uh, a viscerally uncomfortable moment to be there for but the actual like the flow of that moment and the way it it holds just long enough to really feel very very uncomfortable yeah yeah and it, it's uh just just very uh not not hyper specific or noticeable editing but nevertheless i think a very talented edit job very talented cut job uh from from scott morris so yeah i guess the only other thing i would add myself and that's all, all well said elijah i appreciate the technical insight as always is that like i think i want to make the point i which i kind of made on the fableman's podcast a little bit where it's like i mean and I, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to like knock down a straw man here or anything like that. I don't think anyone's was like dismissing this because it's just another thing about a director making a movie about a childhood or anything like that. I haven't heard a lot of that kind of thing uh, in that way, but I do think at a certain point, like there, there, there have been a lot of these movies the last few years where directors are taking stuff straight from when they were younger and just putting it right on the screen, whether it be, you know, uh, whether, whether it be like Roma, Belfast, this, Fablemans, whatever. And I just, I just want to kind of make the point again, that I, do, I do think this like stands on its own in a very interesting way compared to any of those movies. And, and like, like any of them, you can make an argument, any of them do. I just wanted to like make the point that like, I do think this is very distinct in that like, specifically because like you know on like you know like like roma wasn't from the kids perspective uh and uh belfast is from a littler kids perspective that's you know getting a different i a, a more sheltered view of the world even as some messed up stuff's going on around him here it's like i think it's important to note that like as we said you know it's it's, it's a slightly older kid that can be aware of more things and he's not just and, and, we're, and we're getting a, a fairly unvarnished if sanit possibly somewhat sanitized look at his parents as opposed to like you know the parents in belfast are are are, are, are pretty un, are, are put, put in a pretty positive light and I, I honestly i gave spielberg credit for that too on the failman's podcast just because like you know you don't expect necessarily him to be you know going to, to necessarily like you know go, go somewhere that uncomfortable and i think he kind of does at points there but like here it's like look i mean like i said very fearless in how he you know puts his parents out there but also like you know just dealing with a lot of different stuff that this kid is having to come to grips with in a way that i think feels different from anything else where you've seen directors just kind of like you know dip back into their memory banks i just want to kind of make it clear for anyone that like you know is you know thinking about trying to pitch this to another friend or somehow got to this point in the podcast without having seen it like just I, if, 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 if we weren't clear already, I think James Gray does a really good job of like, you know, justifying why this should exist when there's already been uh, other movies the last uh, five years that like, you know, also uh, in some ways are, you know, going about, you know, telling their people, filmmakers going about telling their stories in a, you know, in a personal way. And I think he does a good job of like, you know, making this its very own different kind of thing where it's asking its own challenging, distinct questions. And I just wanted to, that was the final point I wanted to make. So I've long maintained that every great filmmaker is allowed to make their armor court at some point. Yeah, I, I, I'm the one that joked uh, last year uh, that I uh, I thought that, uh, or I had a tweet that I thought was one of my better tweets where I was like, uh, it was after, uh, wait, who who won Best Original Screenplay at the Oscar last year? Uh, Belfast. Yeah, it was after that. Funny that I'm talking about this right now, and I just named dropped Belfast a minute ago, and I was like, my tweet was like, the year is like, 
20 is like 2039 paul thomas anderson has been nominated for like 37 academy awards and hasn't won yet but he finally gets the oscar for best original screenplay for writing the valley in which you know uh in, in which uh his childhood story is told and he's being played by cooper hoffman's son like i could like totally see something like that happening and you know paul thomas anderson would be you know within his right to make that movie you know so <laughs> um uh but yeah uh I think I think we've about well covered it. I uh, uh, before you get out of here, Ben, is there any anything you want to recommend to the listeners as you're uh, that, that you want to watch that, you, that that they should be watching with whether it be something coming up soon that you've already seen with your LA privilege or just something well from the past that this made you, this movie made you think of. Yeah, so I mean, two two quick things. One, um, so I'm actually really pissed at myself. Last time I was on here, I forgot to mention After Sun. Um, well, I was gonna, is, I was gonna I was gonna mention that before we signed off because when I was talking about what's coming up because that comes to streaming on the twentieth and I was thinking maybe that would be one that uh, we would do with Arjun or something like that. Uh, yeah, uh, look, you want me on for that? I'll be there in a heartbeat. It is one of the best movies of the year. It, so every so often there is a movie that like gets really hyped up on film Twitter. Uh, probably an A twenty four movie that gets really hyped up on twi- film Twitter. This is one of those movies that fully deserves it. Um, it is a brilliant, beautiful heartbreaking uh depiction of a woman trying to remember her father and it 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 hit home like a truck but it's a really beautiful movie i'm not going to spend too much time on that because thankfully that is one that has gotten the publicity and press it deserves uh a movie that has not quite gotten that press yet that is currently doing like a one week la release and is probably going to go wider next year is a movie called return to soul um that is also one of the best things i've seen this year it's a movie about a a french woman who was adopted from korea as a baby who is returning to korea for the first time um and ends up basically reuniting with uh her birth father um and if you think you know what that movie is from that description you are very very wrong um this is a movie that is very much about the complexity of identity and the complexity of identity from a character who is very uncomfortable with the nature of having an identity kind of foisted upon them. Um, It is a beautiful, sad, rich, complex movie with one of the best lead performances of the year. Um, And it is a genuinely inventive film that I will be thinking about for a long time. And when you are eventually able to see it, I would highly recommend seeing it. All right. Well, thank you for those recommendations. Uh, Elijah, anything you want to plug? Yeah, um, I'm actually, I want to talk about, because we, you know, we sort of talked about the general dearth of uh, Jewish American films. Um, and and I know that I think, you know, there's definitely some touch points that everybody will sort of already remember, right? Like A Serious Man or Once Upon a Time in America. Um, But there are two movies that I want to call out, um, specifically because they sort of share a very uh, notable kinship with Armageddon Time in sort of their tone and their execution. Um, That would be uh, Ralph Bakshi's American Pop and Barry Levinson's Avalon. which are both available. Well, I think American Pop is on Prime, and Avalon is to rent on Prime. Um, but they're they're both available. They are readily available on Amazon. Um, and so American Pop is 1981. It's an animated film 
for those who don't know who Ralph Bakshi is, he's a very uh, talented and very crazy uh, adult animator who did uh, things like Wizards and Fritz the Cat and Heavy Traffic, um, where there is lots of uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And American Pop is sort of that to some degree. But uh, mostly it's actually a really visually intriguing, really beautiful uh, epic um, about a Jewish family uh, coming from Russia uh, in the 1890s. And it follows the same family over the course of, uh, I believe, about about 60 years um, as they kind of come through Europe, through World War II, into the U.S., um, and sort of the lineage of of how their the trauma they face in Europe sort of uh, inspires maybe through some sort of unfirst you know unseen undescribable indescribable genetic you know sort of element it sort of becomes a part of uh, these people's descendants and uh, it's it's a really interesting movie in that regard. Uh, and obviously, it's uh, it's a jukebox musical, so great music throughout. Uh, and the other film uh, that I was that I mentioned was uh, Avalon, which uh, is from 1990. It's directed by Barry Levinson. It's the third film in his. Uh, he he did like a a, a a tetralogy, or I don't know how many films it is, but it's like four or five. Uh, um semi-autobiographical they're they're all films that sort of have some autobiographical elements um it's called the baltimore series the first one is probably the most familiar one that's diner uh that's what has like had a ton of young people in it like steve gutenberg and mickey rourke and kevin bacon's in it um but avalon is very similar to uh american pop is a story of a jewish family uh, an immigrant family in Baltimore in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and uh, very, very similar to Armageddon Time is actually centered around uh, kind of the, there's a centerpiece of Thanksgiving in both films. Um, there, there's a lot of little similarities, um, but just generally a really, really uh, beautiful movie that kind of talks about the Jewish experience without getting into too much of the overwrought neuroticism of something like a serious man or that gets too deep into the tragedy uh, as with something like Pawnbroker, which are, are both great movies. But the reason I'm mentioning Avalon and American Pop is because I think they're great examples of the Jewish American experience on film that are not overly dark or <laughs> they're they're more accessible and they're more uplifting in my opinion well i appreciate you going there with your recommendations because uh avalon's one i've like had on my list for a while like five or six years ago we all made each other like letterbox playlist and you deleted the one you made for me but i always remembered that avalon was on it and uh and Sorry. it's, it's, it's it, and I, I sometimes forget about those i'll like go back and i'll look at them and every now and then it's like oh i haven't looked at them in a while but i've ended up watching like five of the 11 on the one that ben made for me like in 2016 or whatever so and like and like i have like and then there's ones that's like i've been meaning to get to that i just haven't to that are like on this list that ben made me like i'm staring at infernal 
Criminal Affairs right now. I've never read that or The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. But like I watched like Anatomy of a Murder on my own. And it was like, I love that movie as a lawyer. And like, I probably had like a much, and I'm glad I watched it when I did instead of like right when Ben recommended it. Cause like I had a really big respect for like some of the legal procedural stuff of it that like I would not have had when if I watched it right when I graduated law school. And Avalon was just one that always stuck with me when I saw that you had recommended it for me. And I just, just never got around to it. It was harder to find it at other times. And now it's glad it's more hard. It's easier to watch now. So I'm going to definitely make a, that a priority while it's still uh, easily easy to rent on Amazon. Cause you know, uh, an idiot, like uh, 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 a stubborn guy like me that doesn't own any physical media needs to like, you know, just get on his game when he sees something like that. I, uh, the only thing I'll say right now for recommendations, cause I'm kind of recommended out cause I've been so busy is I'll just say, watch James Gray movies. You know, uh, it's, it's pretty cool that he gets to like keep making them. And I, I don't know, I actually don't know off the top of my head what the budget for this movie was, but like, you know, it was 15, uh, 15 million. million, you know, I mean, still it's cool that like, he's able to, it's, it's not going to make that bad money back. So I'm glad that people keep deciding to fund him when he decides he wants to do something. I mean, I think it was a pretty deliberate choice on his part to take a, a step back to a smaller budget after Lost City of Z and, um, and at Astra, but you know, like, I mean, and it seems like he might just like kind of like he's, he's gotten that out of his system and I'd be happy if he wanted to make another Ad Astra, but like, you know, it's probably not too easy to get a $15 million movie like Armageddon time made. So I would like people to support him and keep finding his movies in any way they can. And cause he hasn't made a bad movie. I mean, I think I've enjoyed them to varying degrees, but they all have, they all have some value and I hope people, you know, keep supporting him and letting him do his thing. So. Oh, I actually have one more very quick, timely plug. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, look, I've brought up Claire Denis, uh, quite a bit on this podcast and I've, I've, I've been on here for a, a discussion of one of her movies. Uh, Sight and Sound has currently declared that uh, Beau Travail is one of the 10 greatest movies of all time. So uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you now have no excuse not to watch it. All right. How about I'll, 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 I'll I promise I will do it before we do the podcast on stars at noon. You know, how about that? So there we go. Uh, you guys are doing a podcast on stars at noon. Yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> I still need to see it, but did you already watch it? I did, yes. I have not. I've been waiting. I'm waiting till Ben watches it. And uh, I know the reviews weren't good, but like I like I, I like Margaret hey, Crowley and I like I gave it three and a half stars. I had oh, fun I've, with it. I've, but I've I heard could... very divisive things from people I know and trust who love Claire Denis. I've heard some people say it's her worst movie, and some people say it's on like it's underrated and much more complex and interesting than people are giving it credit for. I will I'm only holding... say I, I will say this. It feels a lot like Claire Denis took the criticism from High Life of like the sex content and this was weird. And Claire Denis was like, yeah, yeah, you want to fucking see how hard I can, how hard I can go? <laughs> You've seen Bastards, right? Uh, no, no that's not. actually what I have. Oh, yeah. Okay, you should. I'm not going to say nothing else about it other than uh, if you thought the sex was kind of in any way off-putting in any of her other movies... Holy fuck. Uh, that Bastards, I think, is one of Claire Denis' best movies. And it's also the one that, like, literally sent me in a spiral for, like, in two hours after I watched it, where I basically just walked home in a daze and, like, stared at the ground with the lights off afterwards. Wow. Um, okay. This is this is very strange to me as someone that's only seen, like, you know, five or six of her movies. And one of the, one of the more recent ones being the one that features a fuck box. So it's funny to hear you, like, be like, oh, like, High Life's nothing compared to these other ones, you know? Uh, all I'm going to say about that movie is Corn Cob. Um, okay. Okay. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> all right. There you go. Uh, do you guys want to plug your letterboxes or anything like that before we wrap it up? Yeah, I'm, I'm on Letterboxd. I'm on there under my name. You can also search uh, The Plot is Lost, one word, um, but you can find me under Ben Um I okay. update it occasionally. Any social media you want to plug, Elijah? Yeah, I'm on Letterboxd as Mr. Smith Goes to FL, uh, the number two. 
All right. As usual, I'm Josh Jernavoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on both Twitter and Letterboxd. Podcast Twitter is at RewindMoviePod. Podcast email is RewindMoviePod at gmail.com. Coming up next on the podcast, I'm uh, not exactly sure what order stuff's coming out in, but like I know we were going to be doing episodes. I think Elijah is going to join Josh Brown and me to talk about Avatar The Way of Water. And uh, at some point in the couple weeks after that, maybe I'll get to do a podcast with uh, Ben and Arjun on Aftersun because I'm I, I should be able to see that within a within a couple weeks now of right now. And uh, you know we'll be hitting all the other award stuff that we haven't already done episodes on. So everyone, stay tuned for that. Thanks for everyone for listening. Thanks again to Ben and Elijah for joining, and we'll see you next time.